Richard Minsky is a famed book artist, but also an expert in illustrated book covers. Can you put that a bit better than I did? No, but I I, I can put it worse because I don't consider myself an expert. I've, I've produced exhibitions and catalogs of about 1,200 book covers from the period of 1872 to 1930, which is a very specific period of time. And the reason it's specific, and I call that the golden age of American book covers, and it's just American book covers, that's why an expert is too grand, but uh, for this limited... book, Sorry, book covers, not book dust jackets, book covers. These are yeah. printed or stamped, mostly cloth and sometimes paper, hard covers for the most part on books. And the reason I started in 1872 is because the Grolier Club exhibition of commercial book bindings, I think it was 1894... Uh, I have the catalog in there, but that's about when it was. Selected a particular book from 1872 that Holt had produced. What book was that? Flyleaves. But it was part of a series. It was part of a series. It was a series binding. But to them, it represented the new development of book binding. Notice that was the break from Victorian book binding. It actually brought in the Japonisme you know, the, the, uh, the Oriental influence. So I started my first catalog with that book because I think if the Grolier Club chose it, the Grolier Club in uh, uh, 1894, that was good enough. That was a reasonable thing that someone at the time chose that, yeah. you know, as yeah. an example. The reason I stopped in my first, in my exhibitions at 1929 and in my Braziller book at 1930 was because... It kind of faded out after World War I when the inability to get the materials and the wartime economy you know, due to rationing made it difficult and dust jackets started to take over. Dust jackets have been on books since maybe the 1830s. They started taking over pictorially to sell the books, which is what we're talking about, by the First World War. There was a little boom economy uh, that happened in the 20s that revived the stamped cloth bindings. But by 19, after 1929, with the economic crash and then World War II, dust jackets really took over after that. And in my Brazilla book, I included 1930, because there are a number of 1930 books. But they were generally designed in 29, but came out in 30, mm-hmm. you know, which is uh, you know, which, which the sensible reason for including those. But that's really the time period okay. in which... These beautiful examples of gold on cloth and poster-style pictorial bindings and books that exhibited futurist concepts in 1880 and various other art movement concepts that you associate with later in the 20th century at the turn of the century as modernism came into the American home on book covers. So your observation is that book covers preceded the actual, quote, movements. They were precursors. They also helped acclimate the audience to exciting new designs. 
The old forms of design exhibited were available at the same time, if that was your taste. If you look at salesmen's sample books, of which there are thousands from that time period, you'll see modernist book covers offered simultaneously with late Victorian or post-Victorian East Lake styles and uh, that were looked modern at the time, but really were outgrowths of Victorianism. What they look like? Oh, uh, think of uh, an ornamental mailbox support. Versus what you're talking about, which came in again. Which is in... surrealist, constructivist, uh, futurist, uh, yeah. Uh, abstract. Okay, and th- those came in. Those came in in the 1880s, okay. 1880 to uh, on. Okay, from the from starting in 1880, let's say. Okay, because I can we can look at um, Art Nouveau from 1881 from Edwin Austin Abbey. We can look at the mysterious uh, designer who I think might have been John Lafarge, although the John Lafarge catalog resume expert said, poo-pooed it, saying Lafarge never did any book covers. Of course, in those days, book covers weren't signed, and Lafarge did just happen to do illustrations for the books for all the same publishers that we're talking about, but they certainly looked like something that, if not Lafarge, an artist of his level of accomplishment. But in those days, an artist wasn't... They, that was before that break between art and craft. So right. Lafarge did stained glass. He was involved in the resurrection of stained glass. And, and what's interesting is, if you look at Lafarge's students, Margaret Armstrong, Alice Cordelia Morse, Sarah Wyman Whitman. And, all women. Yes, who were, all were students uh, in stained glass and other things and apprentices. For example, Whitman was an apprentice of uh, John Lafarge. And these are people who went on in stained glass and book cover design and illustration and in painting, much as Lafarge did. What, now, what dates were his, what were his dates? The earliest book cover that I think might have been his or, so heavy, or, or similar would have been about 1880. Okay. And we have uh, Sarah Wyman Whitman coming up just a few years later. We have Alice Morse in the 1890s. We have uh, Margaret Armstrong in the 1890s, on, onward okay. from there. So, so he was already established you know, from the 1860s on. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we have Sarah Whitman also studied with John Lafarge's teachers in France. So, uh, I mean, there's, there's a lineage that takes this, that brings Barbizon aesthetics in. So there's a lot of art history. It's one of the things I find that people who are the book people and even the you know, people who are historians of bindings aren't as familiar with art history and you know, the associated movements and the connections with it as so it really hasn't been looked at as art history. It's sort of a, a wall between the two. And you're the one who's bringing that wall down. I don't know if I'm bringing it down. I'm well, just you're looking to, over the I'm, wall. I'm trying to make a chip in it anyway. Okay. It's funny, when you mention these, these artists, I, I think of Rennie um, McIntosh. Yeah. Was he working at there around the same time? Or a bit later? 
He was in Glasgow, and then he was yeah. Macintosh. Macintosh was great. You defined American. I'm only talking about American. I'm really not. This is your yeah. This is your the, field the of British. No, and and uh, Scotland. But they they must have had an influence though. Oh, there was very influential, and the influence is very direct because it was really coming out of the arts and crafts movement. Yeah, and the aesthetic movement, William Morris and Cobden Sanderson, and uh, in my book I give exa- I show examples of American cover designers who almost copied Compton yeah. Sanderson's and who came out of the aesthetic tradition. Uh, well, I mean, Sarah Whitman, her first known binding, which was really based on a uh, Dante Gabriel Rossetti binding from 20 years earlier that was on a Swinburne. You know, and, and so those things all were highly influential. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and it wasn't just the British also, because you also had the Austro-German... Uh, there, there was a lot going on. Okay, but your focus has been American. Because, well, yeah, because you're because, because you're American. Well, because I'm American and and it interests me. Why? Because well, well, because nobody's covered it. I mean, okay. the, the the you know the other stuff, you know, the Jugendstil, the the arts and crafts movement, you know, the British one. Uh, there's, there's a lot that you know, research yeah. has been done on that. Yeah. Yeah. But the fact that the American publishers bindings have not been looked at as art mm-hmm. history. Yeah. You know, there have been, you know, some forays, Gollum's and Espy, you know, starting in the, really in the late 60s and, and then into the 70s and on. And then uh, there was the um, TBR, uh, uh, Trade Bindings Review, that came out of, was it UCLA or was it UCLA? Out of California. Okay. University of California. And then, of course, Sue Allen's work. Uh, I got very motivated, and it was 1976 or thereabouts, that her book came out from the University of Chicago on Victorian book bindings. And what thrilled me about that was it was a, it's a little pamphlet came out because they didn't have much money to produce it, and it came out with three color microfiche, having hundreds of color pictures of the bindings on microfiche because it was so much cheaper than printing them. That was one of the motivations that got me to issue CD-ROMs with my limited edition books uh, to provide searchable PDFs mm-hmm. uh, and the database of the body so you could search by any criteria because I love books, but I also love information about books. And to me, it's great if you can both have the book and the information. So, again, your motivation is, hey, I want to break into, uh, cut a new path. no. Okay, but you just said that no one else had really been studying it. Well, that's yeah. Well, that's why I had to do it. That wasn't my motivation. My motivation was I'm a bookbinder and a gold stamper, and I taught gold stamping, mm-hmm. and I wanted to figure out how they did it. So I started buying those books to try and figure out how they'd done it. Okay. So I wanted to learn how they did it, and there was no way to go to just read about how they did it conveniently. I went and I, you know, I went to Columbia University and went through the archives of like the American Bookbinder, whatever it was called, several of the different trade journals at the time. But it was really by actually looking at the books and studying them under a loop that I was able to figure out how they had the techniques they had done to achieve the effects that I wanted to achieve because I wanted to utilize those effects in my work. You know, not looking like their stuff. And there was no textbook. And there wasn't a textbook okay. on how to do that. Okay. So the, the, I started collecting these things as a way of learning how they did it. Which is a, a really, you know, you don't want to just collect for the sake of collecting. You want to collect for the sake of learning and producing information that will help others 
what, understand what took place or help them in their own collecting, I suppose. All the above. Speaking of which, what's the best stuff to go after? What's the stuff that no one else is going after? What's the best stuff that's the least expensive? Boy. What do you think is, is really interesting that, that hasn't been explored to the extent that it's stratospherically expensive? Most of this stuff is not stratospheric. This stuff is cheap. That's good. This stuff is fairly cheap. You know, we're not talking about million-dollar art here. We're not talking no. about... Oh, yeah, you produce stuff that basically told people, hey, this is collectible. You can get these books for, you know, like $20, $40, $50, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, books that eight or ten years ago were $20. Yeah. Uh, worst copies of are, like, listed for $400 now. I mean, right. it's, uh, you know... So you've but, ruined it for all the well, collectors then. I did it in stages. The first thing, I issued my deluxe and my limited edition catalogs. So I had 25 copies of deluxe, 100 limited edition, bought by a few collectors, some dealers, and mostly by rare book librarians who could search through the stacks because I provided the database file, and they could do an electronic search to find if they had copies of this books in stacks that should be removed from circulation and brought into special collections, right? So that was a very useful tool for librarians. Um, then the collectors also, you know, would collect the stuff. Some of them, there are not a lot of copies out there of, so that made them scarce. If they were scarce already, but nobody wanted them, then the three or four copies went. That's one thing. Then George Brazilla asked me to do a trade book. Neither one of us thought there would be that much interest in it. So he produced 2,000 copies as a first printing. It sold out in three weeks. Uh, It took six months to get more copies. And then that sold out. They're not going to reprint the hardcover again, but which has the beautiful stamped cloth binding. But this September, it's coming out in paperback. This September 2013? Yeah. That's good to know. Yeah. I've designed a show. You can go on Amazon and see the paperback cover I designed for it. That's going to be the Bible for the collector. Well, it already is. Already there's like 4,000 people or whatever who've gotten it. That's what I mean. There's already more people who have this book than the copies were printed of most of these books. You know, 1,000 copies. Some of them are only made in 500 copies. You know, some of them are 1,000. Some of them are 2,000 copies. You know, but there are 4,000 people who have the book. There there are fewer copies of the originals than there are people who have the book with pictures of them. That doesn't mean that everyone who bought a book bought one of the originals. Well, they can't because how many of them are left after 100 years? Much less than any condition worth collecting. Collecting, yeah. Okay. So the the closing question... Some of them there are only 50 copies of, you know. Yeah. What's interesting to collect now, in your opinion, that is going to be valued in the future that you either you haven't covered or that is under the radar well if it's under the radar and i haven't covered it then (laughs) it's really whatever you love well if you cover it then it's not under the radar that's what i'm saying i don't want collect what you love because that's what everyone says well it's it's the truth because the reality is you were in, you saw you saw what's in the cases there. Yeah, they're beautiful. They're beautiful. They really and I are. love them. Uh-huh. And so whether or not they appreciate in value, that I get the enough. benefit exactly. of the reality of yeah. their they're just wonderful. That's right. So you really just have to you know, yeah. what do you do? 
It's not an investment. Yeah. No. You know, you, you just, you know, you get them because you love it. But, Maybe everybody says that, but it's true. No, I know that. I guess what I'm saying is, or asking is, uh, so, so what should we look for? I mean, if you're talking to an audience of, of the readers, they really should get the book and, you know. Get you your learn, book. Yeah, and learn. Yeah. And, and, and look and, through and see cheap. what they like. The book is cheap. I mean, even even the hardcover, the beautiful hardcover, listed for thirty five, and you could probably still find it for twenty five on Amazon from somewhere, you know, okay. or get a used copy, and it's beautiful. So you you get it, and I talk about it and I explain in the okay. book, okay. and I don't get, I'm not going to make a penny from that because, of course, the publishers already sold out of stock, so I don't get anything from people <laughs> buying copies of yeah. that. But that's the way to learn it, you know, because you really have to get a little bit of knowledge about sure. it. And then just look at all of these. Okay. And then there are different genres. And I go through the different genres and I talk about that. And you see what appeals to you. Okay. And, you ha- and then you choose. And if you're going to make, do something that's going to become valuable, it's because you make it valuable because you see something that I didn't see. Okay. And that's really what makes it valuable. Well, again, you haven't covered the waterfront entirely, have you? You've just sort of... I can't. You can't. Nobody can. It's, no. There were a huge... I've already cataloged over 1,200 of these. And I've seen maybe five or 10,000 of them. You know, yeah. most of them, I mean, you know, the rest of them don't interest me that much. I mean, there's a lot of hack work. What does there's, that mean, hack work? Hack work is boring. Like? Re- repetitive. It's things that you've seen a hundred times. Okay. There's nothing outstanding about it. It's just something that they got out there. It's not a spectacular design. Uh, it doesn't uh, elevate cool. you when you look at it. You know, yeah. all the usual stuff. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, you, you look for stuff that is eye-catching. Is there something beyond that then that is starting to catch your attention that you haven't done any work on that uh, that, that might be uh, interesting uh, to people? Uh, how would I know if I haven't done any work no, on it? No, but if you've sort of thought, oh, look, there's for an example, area. For example, the most recent thing I have written about yeah. was Thomas Watson Ball, who nobody knew about because he didn't sign his bindings. Mm-hmm. But it turned out that all these bindings that nobody knew who did were done by him. And I, in this exhibition I just did, I had almost 100 of them. And if it wasn't for the fact that Robert Metzdorf bought the Thomas Watson Ball's presentation portfolio that he like showed to potential clients yes. at the Swan Gallery in 1970, and then his, in his estate... It went to University of Rochester, or Rochester University, I always get that confused, which eventually by 2002 got it cataloged, and that had 41 examples of his work from which we can identify others, you know? So, like, that's probably the newest area of collecting in this field is Thomas Watson Ball. Okay, and how can we tell that it's by him if he's not signed it? Go on the internet and, 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 look. Look, at the t- and look at the books and, and you can see what his styles look like. Okay. In my book, I analyze. In my, in my catalog of Thomas Watson Ball, I analyze his uh, letter forms and you know, his stylistic things. But you, know, you should be able to look at them and, and you get a pretty good idea of what he does. Very good. Richard Minsky, thanks very much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Likewise. <laughs>